kind of catch you up on where we are in the story here of the book of Acts, because we are in a history, book of Acts is a history book, so we are kind of going through the story of the early church. Um, we, we talked a lot about Peter's uh, message last week in Acts chapter 2 that kind of concludes or hits its crescendo with Acts 2.38. You know, they are brought, he's preaching to this multitude after the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to the 120 in the upper room. And so there is this big buzz, as you can imagine. Um, these people hear these, this crowd speak in their own language. Uh, we kind of pointed out that these, the people, the reason that it's significant it was poured out on Pentecost was because there was Jews from all over the known world in Jerusalem at that time for the Feast of Pentecost. And so you've got Jews from as far away as Rome. And if you look at a map, as a very far distance. Uh, it does not take you a couple of days to get to Jerusalem from Rome. It's a, it's a long journey. Weeks could even be a couple months to get there. So it's, a, it's from a faraway place. They didn't have the convenience of airplanes or cars. So the fact that these people who were such from these Roman, these Jews from Rome were in Galilee and they're like, these people are speaking our own language. It was a miraculous sign to them that something was happening. So you've got this group of people. They see this miracle. They're wondering what's going on. Peter stands up and begins to preach to them. He walks through several things. He addresses their questions. He points out, he pulls from the scriptures they already knew in the Old Testament, right? So he builds upon their faith. He brings them to a place of conviction, right? It, it, which we know because they answered the quest, they answered, they asked him a question in response to the word of God, which convicted their heart. What shall we do? And that should that is always the proper response when we are hear the preached word of God, we, we should come to a place of conviction that begs us to ask the question, what do I do next, right? What do I do now that I've heard the truth? That decision point is critical. And that doesn't just end with salvation, right? When we hear the preached word, we should constantly let God bring conviction and truth to our hearts and then us constantly be asking that question, now that I've heard more of the truth, what do I do with it now? And so Peter brings this crowd to this place. They ask the question, and Peter gives them what we know is kind of the salvation formula or, the, or this, this, the ways to obey the gospel that they just heard, right? Repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and be filled with the Spirit of God, filled with the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues, right? So a beautiful um, kind of crescendo to this message. Um, and so we see, we talked a little bit about history and how it, it kind of, testifies to how they were baptized, and we kind of ended talking about baptism, um, and I wanted to just touch on one thing uh, before we kind of move on, uh, and that was when, when Peter stood up and said, repent and be baptized or be immersed, because that word bap- baptize is baptizo in the Greek, which refers to immersion, right? So immersion or baptism was not a new concept to the Jewish people. It was not. It was not something Peter wasn't standing up and saying, he, do something completely different than you've ever heard before. I know you've never heard of this water thing where you go down and you come up and you're magically now washed, your sins are washed away. They understood when they heard the word immersion to be immersed, they think back to the laws of Moses. They think back to the ritual cleansings that God had established for them. And there's all sorts of different um, times when they were commanded to cleanse themselves and you can go through and you can read um, some of it was logistical or for for hygiene some of it was 
kind of symbolic, but there was a regular cycle of cleansings that they, they, they went through and were immersed. And um, I was um, doing a little bit of studying. I actually talked to somebody uh, today from, that goes to a uh, Messianic Jew synagogue, um, and they, I was asking them about this, about baptism. And these, these mikvahs, what, they're called, what they call it, um, are just these places where they would, they would immerse themselves. And it could be um, in the river or sections of the river that were calmer, that were conducive to being immersed. Um, they, could, they were man-made pools um, or baths that were made um, where they, they kind of look like a baptismal tank where you have steps down into this like hole in the ground um, that there's water in and you would kind of immerse yourself and then come back up. And so there were these mikvahs around in Jerusalem um, at this time in history. And so it's, um, it's very possible and likely for 3,000 people to get baptized in a single day. Uh, they had to have access to water, and there wasn't a whole lot in Jerusalem. There's only a couple of places this really could have taken place. So bapti- all that being said, baptism to them was not a foreign concept. And so when Peter says, repent and be baptized or be immersed, it was for the ritual cleansings were meant, were outward, and they were meant to be outward cleansings and symbolic. Well, what changed was they were still being immersed, but now, A, it was in the name of Jesus Christ, right? There was a name that was called over them, and, the, and spiritually the blood was applied, and when they came out of that water, they were not only physically cleansed, they were, they were spiritually or inwardly cleansed, right, of all of their sin. So the transformation, you go from this immersion and cleansing for the body, and now you go to the next level of immersion and cleansing for the soul, right? Washing away your sins. And so baptism was just, it was a, it was a small, if you will, progression or step of their faith or what they were already doing. John's baptism was a step closer you had John's baptism, which was unto repentance, immersion. And then you had Jesus who came. And, and then the apostles said, be baptized or be immersed. But don't just be immersed unto John or unto the law. Be immersed in the name of Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the blood is applied and we are washed inwardly. So I just wanted to share that and, and kind of pull for a little bit more from and kind of connect the two, right? We hear baptism a lot, and we think it's a new, may think it's a New Testament concept. It's not. It's tied back to the Old Testament, just like really everything you'll find in the New Testament. So um, I started to mention the logistics of this. This is kind of interesting. I think bishops mentioned this before, too, but he, um, the Bible says that in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after Peter uh, preaches, it says in verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Not to get too deep, but I thought this was really interesting. Um, you think about the timing. You know, Peter starts preaching to them at 9. He probably preached for a little while, as preachers do, right? They go a little, long, a little long-winded. He didn't just, Peter didn't just preach that part. It says he kept, kind of kept going and talking to them. So if they started at like 10 a.m., right, and they were baptized that same day, well, their day ends at 6 p.m., so you have like an eight-hour window in there got 3,000 people to put under. If it took five minutes a person to baptize, you got 12 disciples, it would have taken them 21 hours to baptize all these people if all 12 were going at the same time and taking five minutes. So my takeaway from that was they had help. 
right? They couldn't have done it all themselves. And it, I'd imagine it was the 120, or at least a, a subset of the 120 that were also baptizing the believers that day. Because logistically, there's no way, unless they were, I mean, they were just, go. I mean, I don't know. They, it was new, so they probably weren't that organized yet. Maybe they got there. Maybe when the 5,000 believed, they were like, all right, assembly line, you there, Peter, John, James, let's go. Let's get them through. Doubtful, right? So, anyways, I thought that was really interesting. And, and, and you think about people getting baptized. Um, it's not just the elite that can baptize. And, and you should get the blessing of pastor and all those things. But we are meant to participate in this ministry uh, and see souls come to the kingdom. So, here we are, growing church. You go from 120, 3,000, one day. That's a lot of people. I mean, that's per person. What's that, like 25 people per new converts, right? So Peter, James, John, they've got all these people they now have to teach. So I want you to kind of get this picture of we're in Jerusalem, big time of feast, the Feast of Pentecost, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the world, miraculous outpouring, people getting baptized. I mean, it's just word is getting out. I mean, because you know there were people outside the 3,000 that heard that didn't believe and weren't baptized, right? There's always people in the crowd that aren't ready. So they had explosive growth very, very quickly. So let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of verses that are very familiar to us. And then um, I want to talk a little bit about what life was like after that, kind of get into what they were doing. Um, actually, we're going to start with these verses now that I say that. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we continue on. And these five verses, six verses, are a, a summary of a lot of things that are going on after this time. A very kind of step back, and this is just an, an overview. Verse 42 says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So this is, this is the 3,000. This is the you know, plus 120, and uh, those that were being added. They, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, such as should, should, should be saved. This is the, the honeymoon phase of the church, if you will, right? That this, they've got this miracle. There's a huge community of people that have just experienced the same miraculous outpouring. You know, some probably knew each other. Or they had connections. Maybe they were friends. And so there's this really big community, community that comes together. And we see some very amazing characteristics of what they were doing um, during this time. And so if you look at that, it's, it's a great summary of the pattern that we are to follow as the church today, the body of Christ. And the, the, really the four elements that we'll, we'll kind of touch on here, the apostles' doctrine or teachings, their fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers, these are four elements that should be part of our gatherings on a regular basis. They should be. They need to be. Um, obviously, not every time. We don't have a meal when we come into church. We may go um, have a Bible study with somebody at Starbucks and may not um, bust out into you know, 
into a lot of these things, but we, we should experience all four of these on a regular basis for ourselves and in the gatherings that we're a part of. Um, it's something that you know, my wife and I have really tried and aspired to integrate into every one of our Oikos gatherings at, at our home. We want these four elements to be here. We want the fellowship. We want food or a meal. We want prayer, right? We want doctrine or teaching. And it, 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 it's all different shapes and sizes and forms and how it kind of plays out. But um, these four elements are critical for our spiritual health and for the growth and health of the body. And so they should be a regular part of when we get together what we're doing. So let's kind of touch on each one of these um, the first one, the Apostles' Doctrine. The word doctrine just means teachings. It's not just salvation. Their doctrine was not just Acts 2.38. Their doctrine was teachings. So, the church was, we talked about this verse I think last week or two weeks ago. The church of Jesus Christ was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. What were they built on? The teachings, the doctrines, right? They were not physically stacked side by side with the apostles on the floor, right? Building a literal building. They were built, their, their spiritual, the spiritual house was built upon the teachings of the apostles. And this group began to hear the teachings during this time. So they, they had to spend a lot of time together to hear the Word of God. It wasn't just one night or a couple of nights. They were together regularly so that they could get more and more truth. And we should have that same hunger that they did to get together and hear more and more truth. You never stop learning. Never stop learning. Right? So they were built upon this. Um, we can't neglect their teachings and what they said. Um, because it's what Jesus taught. We talked a little bit about that. They were not teaching something new or different than Jesus taught. It was Jesus' teachings, his doctrine. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, or Jesus Christ, and was confirmed unto us, by them that heard him, or the apostles. So you have Jesus Christ and his teachings, and then you have the apostles who confirmed his teachings. And then from that point, those who heard also confirmed. So it, it lines up with the principle, the scriptural principle, that the word must be confirmed by two or three witnesses, right? And so you've got witness number one, Jesus himself, witness number two, the apostles. They agree together. Right? Everything must have a, a, a match to it to establish a doctrine. Um, you've heard this principle before. When you're rebuilding a doctrine or trying to establish a truth, you must have multiple verses, multiple things that connect together to paint a picture of a truth. It must be two or three. It's, and, and most times, if, if it's a significant doctrine, it'll be way more than two or three verses. It'll be four, five, six, ten, fifteen, twenty. And they may not all be very specific, but you take them all together and they paint a very clear picture of that truth. And so by the apostles, the Hebrews tells us what the apostles taught, Jesus taught, and they were the second witness. So 
that's that's the principle. So let's let's briefly. I'm not going to go into kind of each one um, specifically, but I want to read to you what those those teachings are. Hebrews chapter six. These are the these are the foundations, part of our foundation. Hebrews chapter six, verse number one and two. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, doctrine one, teaching one, of faith towards God, number two, the doctrine of baptisms, three, and of laying on of hands, four, and of resurrection of the dead, five, and of eternal judgment. So six key doctrines. And the, and the context, the writer of Hebrews here is saying, let us go on from these things, right? And, and pastors preach that we've talked about, it's not leaving them behind, but build upon. Let's, let's go forward. Let's, let's keep going. You should already know all of these things because you've heard them. We taught them. You should know them. Let's, let's keep going. Let's go in. Maybe let's go a little deeper into your character and integrity. Maybe let's talk about your attitude or how you treat people. Like, let's go on from the knowledge you should have onto perfection or completeness, okay? But you can't move on from them if you don't know them. You should not move on from them if you do not know them. And the first three, I would guarantee a lot of you may have down, right? You, you know the verses. You can Things come to mind when you hear about repentance from dead works, faith towards God, doctrine of baptisms, right? That's all part of salvation. That's all part of what we know to be part of obeying the gospel. And, but what about the last three? Um, I say this not condemningly, but I, I'm throwing it out there. If we sat down tonight and I asked you, give me two or three scriptures on the doctrine of the laying on of hands. Explain it to me. Why is it important? Where did it come from? Why is it significant to me? Could you do it? What about the resurrection of the dead? How is that biblical? Why is that biblical? Can you give me some verses on it? Can you quote any to me? Right? Or eternal judgment. Can you, can you do the same? So, we need to be able to give an answer to everyone that asks of us. And these are critical things. And I think that may end up being in the next week's lesson, probably, uh, uh, Life of Christ. But because we kind of, again, these classes kind of overlap. It's great. But these are very key doctrines. And if, if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the rest of it doesn't matter because the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that's the, the key thing to all of this. So you have to believe the doctrine of the fact it is biblical for people to come back from the dead, which is not normal, you know, in, in, in our logic. So we have to believe these things, eternal judgment. There will be a day where we will stand before God and be judged, where we will go to heaven or we will go to hell, period. It's true. We don't, we don't hear it as much, but it's a, it, it, according to the writer of Hebrews, it's a fundamental doctrine of the church, and we should know that and believe that. And I know many of and, and though you do, um, but you should be able to give an, an answer. You should be able to, to kind of have a couple of scriptures that you know or understand and be able to, to share these doctrines and these truths. So they are meant to be fundamental to us. So these are, these six elements and more were part of what the early church was learning about. 
because this, these are the things that Jesus taught his disciples, and therefore they taught this group. And I, honestly, at this point, it was probably very basic teaching in, in one sense, right? Because it's all very brand new. And so these people are just learning about all of these new things. It's milk, the milk of the word that they're trying to digest and understand. And so it's all very fresh and basic, but it's so enriching their soul, and they, and they mature off of these teachings, um, it's not until later, with our writer of Hebrews is like, all right, let's let's move on, assuming they have the foundation already solid and in hand. So, the early church continued in the apostles' doctrine or teachings. Number two, fellowship. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. The word fellowship means companionship, friendly association, partnership, a mutual sharing. A mutual sharing. You can be in the same room with somebody and not fellowship. You can be at the same dinner table with somebody and not fellowship. You can be in conversation with somebody and not really fellowship. Because your walls are up, your guard, you're not sharing anything, they're not sharing anything, and so it's small talk, it's surfacey, it's not real connection. Right? But the, when they talk about the fellowship... It was a mutual sharing, a mutual sharing of their experiences, their life, what's going on with them, what's going on with, like, in a real connection. So when we talk about fellowship, it's not just standing around downstairs eating cupcakes side by side, maybe chatting about how the weather is. That's good, and that's a start, but you can't say, oh, I've been fellowshipping with with the church, I'm there. No, that's not what they mean by fellowship. Fellowship is deeper than that. It's a personal connection that requires mutual sharing in conversation or what have you. And that only happens when you spend time together. You got to spend time with people. You got to show up. You got to be at church. You got to be at small group. You got to be at Bible study. You got to be at these places to have fellowship. Pastor um, mentioned it recently. I forget where, but technology is awesome. It's not a substitute to have real connection and fellowship. So they met together from house to house. So this newfound love, the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, was active and alive in them, pushing them outside of their boundaries and interacting and loving people and selling their goods and their lands and their houses for people they probably didn't even really know. Because they, something inside of them compelled them to love and give to people that they were fellowshipping with, that they saw every day at the temple and from house to house and on the street. And, hey, you know, you know, remember me? We got the Holy Ghost the same day. Isn't that amazing? How's your family? What's going on with you? Do you need anything? Right? Real sharing. And if we say, no, I'm good, you know, right? I don't need anything. You, you cut off their, you know, your ability for them to love you. So, they were sharing. They were pushing. They were going across their social boundaries and their normal they were Jews, but they were from different countries. So they were, they were, there were differences. They weren't all one big happy family, naturally speaking. But they were united, right, by the Spirit. And I thought I think brother brother Hector um, mentioned in one of his messages from the other night, um, the spirit of unity, and that there's not a spirit of unity. There's we are united in the Spirit, and so we are united by the Holy Ghost. That is the spirit of unity. That is, we are all in the spirit. We are united automatically. 
And so they were united by the fact they had the Holy Ghost. And they were one in the Spirit. They were not one personality-wise. They were not one culture-wise. They were not one opinion-wise. Right? They were not. They were very, very, very different. But they were one in the Spirit. And so when it says in, in that, that verse that they were together and had all things common, right? They were, they were of one mind. It's not in this passage, but one mind and one accord. It was because they were in the Spirit, because they had the Spirit. So you cannot have true fellowship unless there was a sharing, and that really only comes by the empowerment of the Spirit to love where you don't love naturally. The third one, I'm going to kind of skip through this one, breaking of bread. Um, this can be a couple of things. It's probably both. could be what we call communion or the Lord's Supper or really just breaking bread from house to house, just eating too, sharing a meal, right? And there's, there's fellowship that, is, that happens when you share a meal with somebody. And there's, there's also, if you do some studying and the significance in their culture of sharing a meal together, it was... That was, a, that was a thing. It was sharing a meal was more than just eating food together. It was a, it was a bonding. It was this, this, like, you are welcome in my home. Let's share a meal together. Let's sit down. Let's get to know each other. It was a very significant thing. And so they did this on a regular basis. So we should eat together a lot. Eat a lot of food. That's what I take away from that. A lot of bread. No. All right. Number four. It was prayers, and I'm going to kind of move past this one as well, um, but they, the prayer was important to them. They observed the hours of prayer. that from The, from the Jews had uh, hours of prayer, 9 a.m., noon, and 3 p.m., and we can see scriptures in Acts where, um, in actually the next chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, right, being in the ninth hour, 3 p.m. So they prayed together. We should pray together. Even in our homes, even in our small groups, take time, pray together. If it's awkward, push past it. Do it anyway. Because there is a, there is a flow of the Spirit and a, a connection that you can have when you pray together in those in small environments and outside of church. So, I will move past that one. Keep going. So, where are we? Acts chapter 3. So, we exit kind of the summary quick summary of what the church is doing um, after this outpouring, and we kind of get a little bit more into specific stories now um, that, that are key stories, and I, I believe the reason that they're in there was because they were significant turning points in the church, or key moments that triggered a lot of other things that happened in the book of Acts. Um, this miracle is no example. So Peter and John are going up to the temple, the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, and they passed this lame man at the gate called Beautiful. Okay? This, this man had been there for a long time. The whole city knew him. So he had been there for a long time. People had passed by him for years. Uh, the Bible says he was about 40 years old. So again, if he was lame, he was sitting there for, for years. Okay? Uh, it's very likely that Jesus himself passed by this man on the way to the temple to pray, just like Peter and John did. However, this day was different. Jesus didn't heal him. Why? I don't know. I think it's because it wasn't time yet. And this moment was his time. And the reason that it was his time was because God wanted to use him and the, the miracle in his life to reach a city. And that's what happened. Because everybody knew him. They knew he was lame. And so they could not, 
deny if they see this guy up walking around. I've seen him with my own eyes for years. That's the guy. Something's different, right? So God chose this man and let him go through suffering, affliction, difficulty for so many years until the time came when he, it was time for God to say, now's, now's your moment, and it's bigger than you. It's bigger than you getting up walking. In our healing, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, God will often wait until his time to do it because he knows when I do this, it will be for you, but it's bigger than you. And I need to reach somebody else through your miracle. So God will wait, and it's, it's frustrating, and it can be very difficult to wait and, and not understand and, and question and, and wonder why this man who's Jesus, who's healing all these other people, what about me? Why am I still sitting here? Why am I still begging? Now Jesus is dead and gone. I've got no hope, right? But God knew what he was doing, and it, today was his day. And when it was his day... He had the faith, and it happened for him. And so Peter and John are walking to the temple. They see this man, Peter. You know, some of you, know, most of you know the story. They look on him, say, "Look on us." I don't have any money, but what I do have, I will give to you. Rise up and walk. And so he grabs him, he pulls him up. The man is instantly healed. And the other awesome thing about this is, at that point, he went into the temple with them. He wasn't allowed to go into the temple before then. He was excluded from, from this very special place that was so important to his people. It was not just about his physical healing. He was being restored. And he was being allowed into a place where he could fellowship with God and experience God and be part of a community and all of these things all at the same time. So it was, for him, it was more than just being able to walk. But it was now this new life that he was able to experience um, by entering the temple. So him going in the temple and, and leaping and praising God is, is, there was a reason. He was so excited. He'd been outside that temple the whole, his whole life. But now, today was his day, and he took advantage. He didn't just go home. He said, let me go see my family. Let me go, let me go see my friends. He said, I'm going to go worship God. I'm going to go be an example in praise and worship. And so, this was obviously a big shock to a lot of people. Who's this? That's the guy. I know him. What is he doing in here, and how in the world is he walking? And so, people come, and they're like, what's going on? And it gets so bad that Peter has to kind of address it and say, look, people, I know this is amazing, but it's, it's not me. And he says in, in verse 12 of chapter 3, Peter says to the people, you men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why look you earnestly on us? As though by our own power or holiness, we made this man to walk. He's saying it's not something we, we did by our own ability or by our own dedication to God. It wasn't the dedic- their holiness, their separation that, that worked this miracle, but it was, it was Jesus. And he says in verse 16, And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of all of you. And so, Peter, again, just like in Acts chapter 2, a miracle takes place in front of a multitude. Peter stands up and preaches the message, preaches the truth. So, here we are again, where a man gets healed. 
Peter's put in the spotlight. He begins to preach um, an awesome message. The results weren't quite the same for him. Because at the end, he wasn't sitting there baptizing 3,000 people. They got put in prison. They got thrown in jail for the night. So, you know, just because you're being used by God doesn't mean it's going to end up like you think it will. And you may go through some hardship, like he was talking about, but it was all part of his plan because God was about to do more through them, and they had to go through this difficulty. And so... It was a great success because in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. So God did more after this seeming step back for Peter and John than, than even at the day of Pentecost. 5,000 people. That's a, I'm just going to say, that's a big... How, what do you do with that many people? That's a lot of people. I mean, I think the fire code max in this room is 900 Times, times that by five plus. That's a lot of people. I'm just saying. Right? So logistically, that's, that's just it's crazy. So how are we doing? All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of skip through some of the, the persecution pieces of the lesson. You can go back and read through it. But there's one thing I want to point out to you. And I, I want to read this. And, and we're going to um, talk a little bit about a little bit more life within this, this crowd in the church at this time. But I want to pause and, and kind of pivot to this idea of persecution. Um, I'll let Brother Bray talk about all the heavy stuff and, and persecution for 45 minutes, and I'll just skip through it. But it is true, and it is something that God is, is constantly, recently dealing with me about and kind of setting my expectations in my own heart for what is reality for us now and, and in the future. And there's going to be, have to become a... a not a hardness towards God, but a hardness towards this world and their demands on us so that we can be willing to stand in the day of persecution, in the day where we're accused before men. Um, and that's really what I want to kind of point out in, in this, this passage here in Luke um, that I think is very important for all of us to get to this place. Um, Luke chapter 21, verse number 12. Jesus says, but before all these, they shall lay their hands on you, he's talking to his disciples, and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Now catch this. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. And you shall be betrayed both by parents and by brethren, your brothers and sisters, and kinsfolk and friends. And some of you shall they cause to be put to death. Talk about being betrayed, just like Jesus. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends, uh, disciples. It's, he's telling them, this is going to happen to you too. Just a heads up. Not the stranger, your parents, friends. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. He said, this is what's going to come. It will come. It will happen. Period. And Jesus doesn't lie. So it was going to happen. But what did he say in verse 14? 
He says, settle it, therefore, in your hearts. We must settle it in our hearts now. What we stand for, what we believe, and what we're willing to give in exchange for that. For me, I'm not exchanging the truth for anything. Period. And that's a, if I stop and really let myself think about the cost there, in my flesh, that's a very, it's a scary thing to think about. It really is. My family, my, my, the people that I love, I don't want to see anything bad happen to them. I don't want to lose them, period. But if it's between that and me giving up my salvation that I hold dear, I've settled it. I'm not giving it up for anything. Now, it's only by the grace of God that I'll, I'll endure anything that comes. But I'll tell you right now, as far as, as much as I can in this moment today, I've made up my mind. I'm not giving it up for anything. I don't care what comes. I don't care what they say. I don't care. It, it's not, that's not what matters to me. I'm settling it in my own heart when, even before it comes. Because if you wait for the moment, in the moment, to decide what you're going to choose, too late. Brother Bray said, Brother Bray said too late. What did, what did Joshua say? Choose you this day, not tomorrow, not next week. Choose you this day whom you will serve. If you don't choose today on September 2nd, 2021, who you're going to serve when it gets real tough, when this world, when, it's, when your parents or your friends betray you, your brothers and sisters lie on you, if you don't make it up now that you're still going to live for God, you're going to fall away. It's going to be too much. The storm will come. You've got to dig. The, the, the parable in, in Luke talks about the two houses, right? The one that built on the rock, one that built on the sand. If you look, read the, the version in Luke, it talks about he first the one who built his house on the rock first dug down to the rock. And then built up. They dug through every root of bitterness. They dug through every rock of offense. They dug out everything that would get in the way of them building their house on the solid foundation. They removed everything out that could possibly cause their house to be unstable when the storm came. Because they wanted to be 100% sure. I know storms are coming. I know it's going to happen to me to my house, to my family. And I need to be 100% confident that I can last through that storm. The only way that we can be confident that when the storm comes, and it will come to you and to your house, guaranteed, Jesus said it over and over again, you need to be 100% confident, I'm going to make it through. I will endure, right? He that endures to the end shall be saved. It's going to get dark. The storm's coming. It's going to come to your house. But what will you do in preparation for when that does come? What will you do now? One of the the most powerful things I ever heard Brother Victor Jackson say was he was talking about prophecy and, and the things that are to come. 
and how if we truly believe the word that is spoken in prophecy or what is to come, it will affect our actions today. It will. And if it doesn't, you don't believe it. it you won't. You don't. Because for something as significant as your salvation... And, and in context of, of storms and difficulties and trial and, per, and persecution, you may be put in jail one day. You may be on death row one day. I know that's really, it's kind of heavy, and I, I've had to think through it myself. I may be there, or your family might be, and you may need to make, you may be put in a position where if you don't denounce your faith, something's happened to your family. You may be put in that position one day. Or your own life. And if you don't settle it in your heart, I'm not giving this up for anything because I know where my reward is. My reward's in heaven. And where I'm going is much more important than what I'm going through now. And I'm going to settle it in my heart now. I am going to choose this day who I'm going to serve so that when the storm comes, I don't fall. I'm not going to fall. I don't know about you. But by the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, I'm not going to fall when the storm comes. I want to stand on that solid rock. And so if you read, Jesus is warning them of all these things. And so there's the process that Peter and John go through, and I'm, I'm almost done. They get put, because of this healing, there's all this controversy that the the Sanhedrin is is bringing them before they bring them before the Sanhedrin the the Jewish court um, and they say you know we basically we can't deny what's going on but you shouldn't speak in that name right don't fill Jerusalem with your doctrine um, and there were Sanhedrin or there were um, Sadducees on that council what do the Sadducees not believe in miracles right resurrection it's the supernatural. And so if you don't believe in that stuff, and yet you can't deny something happened, you're going to look for every other explanation besides what actually happened. And so you either think they're lying, they're magicians, something's going on that ain't God, because you don't believe in that stuff, right? So they have this kind of this disposition toward the, the Peter and John, like, I know it wasn't a miracle, because that doesn't happen, so what magic trick are you pulling, or, or what, what happened, right? But they couldn't deny it. So they bring him before the court, they, they let him go, and then they come back again, um, and because they're, they're all, they, they get persecuted, they just end up back in the temple teaching. And then they get put in jail, they end up in the, in the temple teaching. And the, the people are believing, people are getting saved. And so they finally bring him before the council, and, and they say, you need to stop. We are furious, because they're also saying, like, you all crucified Jesus. So he, they're not only preaching truth, but they're really accusing these, these rulers because they're the ones that initiated the whole crucifixion in the first place. So they're being accused, and they're, made, they're, they're looking bad. Their reputation's getting tarnished. They're getting thrown under the bus. They don't like it. So they get brought before the council, um, and they, they get so mad at them, they want to kill them right then and there. They want to kill them. But a man named Gamaliel... That's how you say that. Stood up and said, basically, and this was by God, look, guys, we've seen this before. Men rise up, they get a following, amazing things happen, and then they die or something happens and it comes to nothing. We've seen it a couple of times. This could be that. 
just let them go. If it's nothing, if it's not of God, it'll fizzle out. But if it is of God, you can't stop it anyway. There's nothing that you can do to stop what God's doing, period. And don't be put in a place where you're fighting God because not, it's not a good place to be. And so the Spirit was, was speaking wisdom through this man to the council. And so they, they beat the apostles and they let them go. And so what happened was um, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer for his name. What? Y'all were just beaten, right? The same, the same Peter that rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I'm going to go and I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to, I'm going to suffer many things and be killed. The one who was afraid of the suffering, like Brother Bray talked about, is now the one rejoicing because he was worthy to suffer for his name. So there was something in Peter, his perspective of suffering changed. And he understood, if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer for the name. And that is something to, be, to rejoice over because I know where my reward is, and that's in heaven. And so their perspective over suffering changed. And they were respectful I mean, they were, they were Jews, they were respectful to the council, but they were brought to a position, to a place where it was either they obey these Jewish leaders or they obey what Jesus told them to do. And that is a place where we must obey authority. We must respect authority. We must follow the laws and the rules of the land up until they are in direct contradiction with the word of God and what God himself has told us to do. And so with all the craziness going on in our world, I know sometimes it's very difficult to navigate. And you're like, do, should I do this? Should I not do this? Am I, you know, what should I do? Well, you should obey up until you are told to do something that directly violates the word of God. And then Peter says it. Should we obey God more than you? Obey you more over God? You, you figure that out. But we've already made up our mind. We're going to obey the word of God. And so at that point, you are released from that and you, are, you have the liberty to follow the word of God and what the word of God is telling us to do. So that's what they did. They were respectful up until the point. They were put in a position, it's either obey God or obey you, and we've already made our choice. They settled it. They obeyed their word in their heart. So last point, and I, I, this is kind of just an interesting thing. I want to end with this. So you, you, you have this massive group of people, right, that are being saved, the 3,000, the 5,000. You've got persecution that's now starting, right? We had the honeymoon phase where the Bible says they were in favor with all the people. Everyone loved them. It was amazing. There was nothing going on until some of this started to happen, and they were basically like, you crucified him, and the, the leaders are like, you made us look bad, and now we gotta, we're, we're at odds here. And so there's persecution going on, but you've got this massive people that have come from all over the world and that are in Jerusalem. And they stayed in Jerusalem to be taught, to be trained, to be taken care of. And so you have this influx of, of thousands of people that need taken care of, that need a place to stay, that need food, that need clothing, that need these things. And so when the Bible talks about the, this, this attitude of like selling goods and, and giving to those in need... Well, it was because they had this massive influx of people and they didn't have anything to take care of them with. And so when you get into Acts chapter 6, which we'll, 
uh, talk about next week, you have this issue where the widows are being neglected in the, in the daily distribution and, and, and all that. Well, the context is you've got these massive community of new believers that are in Jerusalem to be taught, trained, taken care of, and there's, you need resources. You need natural things. And so they were, people were giving up, selling. I mean, they were wealthy enough to have houses and lands and all these things. Um, they were selling them because they realized what these people need is more important than my own personal comfort and wealth, and I will give up what I have and lay it at the apostles' feet and let my leaders decide what, what needs need to be taken care of. And so it's really interesting, to, if you think about that context, we're not all supposed to go around and sell our houses and our cars and, and come drop the money off at the church and say, you figure it out, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. Pastors in here probably, yes, please don't do that, right? It's an administrative nightmare because then you're looking to the church to take care of you. That's just not how this works. It was a specific context in a specific period of time. They needed that to be the case. Um, and there's some, there's some speculation that later on, the reason that they had to get support from other churches in other areas was because everybody sold everything they had, and then I had nothing. So... Again, not that it was outside the will of God, but if you look at that scripture, we are supposed to give freely. We are supposed to look around to our brothers and sisters and see what needs they have and give of what we have. That is biblical. Uh, but don't go sell everything you have, please. And don't come lay it at the church and take care of you. you. We are to be stewards of what we are given, right? Of our time, talent, treasures, we are to be stewards, but we are to be willing enough to give it for the kingdom of God and to help our brothers and sisters. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, you are so good to us in giving us this this book that teaches us so much about you, teaches us so much about how we are to live, how what kind of community we are to be, how we are to love each other. In every area of our life, God, you give us your truth and your doctrine to teach us how to live. And God, I pray tonight that everything that you have said and spoken in our ears and our hearing, God, that you would cement it in our minds, in our spirits, in our hearts. God, I pray that the seeds that have been planted would grow and bear fruit in every life. I pray a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, God, that their eyes would be opened, that they would see clearly your truth and grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you and we trust you tonight. We give you thanks, honor, praise, and glory. Thank you for your presence here tonight. Pray your protection upon every person here as they leave. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.